The scripture reading for this evening comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. Hear the word of the Lord. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. And they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered, as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. And when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, we do give you thanks for your word, that you give it to us to shape us and direct us and to reveal to us who Jesus is and what he has done that we might, by faith, hold tightly to your promises. And so would you do that for us now as we spend some time looking at your word together, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So, it's Palm Sunday, but really Saturday. I know that, but we're living in that, you know, this moment we're in. Tomorrow's Palm Sunday. And it's this time in Jesus' life where he is actually beginning to be celebrated for who he is. So you remember in the Gospel of Mark so far, there's been accounts where people are trying to figure out who Jesus is and what it is he's saying. And he's been healing people. And then he says, don't tell anyone. And he casts out evil and says, don't tell anyone. And then when there's too many people gathered, he escapes off and goes somewhere else. This is entirely different. Jesus enters into Jerusalem and people are acknowledging who he is. Hosanna, the king, the one who's able to save us. We're crying out to you because you're worthy of honor and adoration. The people are celebrating who he is. So what we're going to do tonight is I want to look through these verses together and think about kind of this part of the story as it prepares us as we enter into Holy Week. And then I'm just going to mention two ideas. That the, what we see in Jesus is an example of true greatness. But it's not his example um, that is the main issue. It's, it's really what we're trying to understand is that in Jesus is real greatness. Like he's actually an example of what greatness really is. And then secondly, experiencing that true greatness of who Jesus is in our own lives and our hearts. And so looking at the greatness of who Jesus is and then experiencing that greatness in our own lives. So if you look at the text here, as they approach Jerusalem... And they enter into Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sends two of his disciples. And he says to them, okay, I want you to go find a colt. And it's going to be tied up. And if anyone asks you about it, just tell them the Lord needs it. Now just take that in for a minute. If you're the disciples, you're hearing this and you're probably thinking, well, people are, they sort of like their horses. Oh, they like their colts. And so if there's one tied up and we go there and we take it, what are we supposed to say? Jesus says, well, if they ask, tell them the Lord needs it. You know, part of what Mark's doing here is he's showing the disciples, he's showing us, the reader, that Jesus is in control. That he's asking them to do something that they quite, can't quite comprehend, like how it's going to work out. But he's saying, go and ask for this. And if they ask, tell them the Lord needs it and, and we'll return it. 
Now, what is that telling us? Well, a couple things. One of the things it lets us know is that Jesus was, he had followers everywhere at this point. The word about him is getting out. And somehow these people had heard that he would need a cult. And so they had it tied at the door waiting for him. And the disciples were told, hey, we want you to go, go and find this cult. I want you to untie it. I want it to bring you back. So what do they do? They went, they found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway, and as they untied it, some people were standing there. What are you doing untying that colt? Now, this is the moment, right? The disciples have to say, um, the Lord needs it, the master needs it. And they go, okay, you can take it. I'm like, well, that really worked out well. They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. And when they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Now, um, we'll talk about this as we think about his greatness, but what's happening here is, is fulfillment in the Older Testament of who Jesus was and how he would enter into Jerusalem. Many people spread their cloaks on the road. Others spread branches that had cut and throw, uh, thrown in from the field, so the idea of palm branches. Those who went ahead and who followed said, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heavens. And so people are acknowledging, okay, this is who Jesus is, and we're crying out to him, Hosanna. He's entering in on a horse. We're laying down palm branches. He's entering into the city of Jerusalem. And then what happens? Jesus enters Jerusalem. He goes to the temple courts, and he looks around at everything. But since it's late, he goes back out to Bethany with the twelve. And what's happening there is they're going back to camp. They're going back to where they're going to be sleeping. They don't realize how intense of a week they're about to head into. Jesus does. The passion's about to begin. He's, a, he's, going, he's going to be going from people who cry out, Hosanna in the highest, you're the king, to people who are crying out for his execution, a complete turnaround. And so Jesus looks around the temple courts. He knows he'll be back in that place. And he says, let's go. And they go to Bethany and they go to bed. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, and we see it here as Jesus is, make, is making it known to us, the question of what is this greatness about who Jesus really is? Like, what is real greatness? And we can ask that same question. You know, we live in a world where people are trying to prove themselves, or they're trying to assess, like, who's worthy to be listened to and who's not, right? What is real greatness? If you had to define it, how would you define greatness in a person? You know, my mother's just finishing up her doctoral program, and she's going to get her doctorate, and I'm really proud of her, and that's great. And she did so well that with her paper that she wrote, she's been invited by the um, institution there to present it to the other teachers, the professors, and the students, and to invite all others in her field of medicine who want to come and learn about this to hear about her doctoral work and, and to sort of celebrate it. It's a big honor. But, you know, my mom didn't study and reach this accomplishment so she could check it off the box and say, okay, good, we're done here. The whole point of her getting that done was because there's more to be done. So it's great, but it's not a goal in and of itself. You know what I mean? Or think about this. I don't know if you saw this Netflix documentary, Free Solo. Did you watch that with Alex in there, this climber? He goes up to El Capitan, which is a 3,000-foot face of a mountain. And if you've ever seen it, you probably have seen it if you don't know what it is. But it is incredibly intimidating. And he had devoted his, at some point later in his life, after he started climbing in Colorado, he said, I'm going to climb El Capitan, which is a feat in and of itself. But Alex decided he was going to climb it free solo. He was going to free climb it. No ropes, no anchors, no real resting. He was going to climb 3,000 feet without any kind of protection. And when he finishes it, he's overwhelmed with joy. You know what he does next? He goes and finds the next mountain. 
It's not a goal in and of itself. Is there a kind of greatness that in and of itself is the goal? Where do we see this kind of greatness? What you think is greatness in a person for yourself and for others, whatever you think that is, it's important to know what that is because your life will begin to be shaped around it. You'll spend your resources around what is great. You'll spend your time around what is great. You'll begin to judge the value of people on if you think they're great or not. What is real, true greatness? What's the kind of greatness we see in our king? Well, this story, this triumphal entry, the people are calling out Hosanna, which literally means save us, we pray. Save us, we pray. Deliver us. Um, is, is a picture of Jesus entering into Jerusalem as a king. Now, normally, in a situation where there's going to be a king entering into a town or into his, his capital city, he doesn't choose a cult which is suitable for a child. He chooses a war horse. And he enters in with great acclaim in his parade and his armies to go into the capital and take it over. Well, what does Jesus do? It's a very confusing picture of the kind of great king that Jesus actually is to do this the way that he does it. He goes in on a cult. It's not even his cult. It's a cult of someone that is going to let him borrow it and he's going to return it. And he goes in on a small horse. And rather than go in and be praised and it be kind of the end of the story to, to celebrate his greatness, what does he do? He looks around the temple courts. He realizes it's late. He realizes the job is not done. And they go back to camp to sleep. Jesus rides in this way for several reasons. One, because he's very humble. He's the different kind of king. He's the kind of king who is so great but so humble. He also rides in because it's a fulfillment of promises in the Older Testament. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. On the one hand, Jesus is amazing. He's the king. But on the other, on the surface, you're like, well, that cult is not going to get you very far in a war, right? What kind of battle is it you're fighting? A king usually comes in and he's celebrated for days. Well, Jesus leaves and it's time to go to bed. His work is not done. Jonathan Edwards talks about some of these things, this sort of nature of who Jesus is as the perfect expression of humanity, who is both a powerful king and yet a humble servant. He has a sermon called The Excellencies of Christ, and he talks about it like this. He says, in John's revelation, Jesus is called both a lion and a lamb. Somehow, Jesus fully embodies both being a lion and a lamb. In Jesus, we see infinite highness and infinite condescension. There in Jesus, we meet infinite justice and infinite grace. And the person of Christ meets together infinite glory and lowest humility. In the person of Christ, do meet together infinite majesty and transcendent meekness. That's who this king is. He is fully God. He is the creator. He's the one by whom and through whom and for, thing, for whom all things are created. He's the one who holds all things together by the word of his power. And yet, he is also a human, a true human, one who knows what it's like to suffer, one who knows what it's like to uh, be doubted, one who knows what it's like to have his reputation maligned. How does he act? What choices does Jesus make? Where does he spend his time? Who does he spend his time with? If Jesus is really the son of God as he claims to be, and we believe that he is, and if he's really this king and yet he comes in on a, on a colt, on a donkey, 
what is, what is he really like then? You know, if you think about what it is that Jesus does, consider, consider when he heals people. When Jesus heals people, he tells them, hey, don't tell anybody. His chief goal isn't fame. He's poor. He's, he's roaming from town to town. Jesus could have at any moment called out to the angels for deliverance and said, hey, bring a chest of gold. And he doesn't. And Jesus has his followers. He feels, you know, we see at times where they're in danger and they have to escape. It would not have been hard for Jesus to call an army of angels or to say, hey, I've got an idea. I'm going to build this incredible mansion. Uh, Just the angels are going to put it together for us. And that's going to be base camp for us in our ministry. That's not what he does. If we look at who Jesus is and what he does, what we're seeing is God revealing to us the kind of greatness that the true king really has. And it's, it's oftentimes not exactly what we're thinking. He's one who understands hunger, pain, sickness, misunderstandings, and his triumphal entry doesn't lead to a palace and a great celebration. What does it lead to? It ultimately leads to the same people crying out, crucify him, forget him, execute him. In Jonathan Edwards' sermon, he gives an illustration about what it's like to think about our own greatness. Everybody does this. You know, at some point you compare yourself with someone else and you think, man, I'm better at this than them. Or maybe you feel like, man, they're so much better than I am at this. And we begin to kind of derive our value from that. Well, Jonathan Edwards gives a great illustration about this. He says, compared to God, sometimes we can think of ourselves like worms, right? He says, if one worm becomes a little greater than another because he has a bigger dunghill or more dirt, he makes much of himself, He sees an enormous distance between himself and those below him. He expects others to serve him and to show him the respect he deserves. Right? He's just a worm. Christ condescends to wash our feet, we read in the scriptures. Great men would struggle to do this. Or bigger worms, as Jonathan Edwards says. You know, when we think about our greatness, and we think about God's greatness, how do we process that? You know, every man, woman, and child is created with honor and dignity and respect. Jonathan Edwards' point isn't that people are as valuable as worms. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if we compare God's ability and God's power and God's resources and God's kindness and God's omniscience to ours, it's kind of like we end up being the worm in the situation. And God doesn't approach us wanting us to measure up to some standard that his son doesn't make possible for us to access. In John chapter 13, verses 14 to 15, Jesus says this, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. You Jesus is a humble servant. There's no way around it. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to also, you also ought to wa- ought wash one another's feet. Like Jesus is this magnificent king, and yet he's saying, I'm going to wash these feet. He's the one who has complete and total power, and yet he yields himself for our sakes. Jesus himself is an example. If you want to look at an example of what true greatness is, Jesus is the perfect example of greatness. To serve, to care for to love us with all of who he is so that we can have access to this kingdom that he is riding into to begin to announce as he does on Palm Sunday with his triumphal entry. What kind of king is that? Well, it's the king of heaven and earth. The one who comes, who condescends, who says there's no such thing as a person who doesn't have access to who I am. 
And we read in the scriptures that Jesus died not just for just Israel. He died for the whole world to remove sin from the whole entire world. That there's no one who doesn't have complete access to the very maker of heaven and earth because of who Jesus is and what he does and what he conquers as he enters into the triumphal city. So, what does it mean then to experience true greatness? If Jesus is great, and he is, if he's all-powerful, and he is, if he also humbles himself as a servant, and he's calling us to follow him, what does it then really mean to follow him? What does it really mean to experience this kind of true greatness? How do we even get to a point where we believe that's true? It's counterintuitive. The idea that if I'm going to serve others and I'm going to love others and I'm going to care for others, I'm going to sacrifice even myself for the sake of others, how on earth would that ever bring me life? Well, that's what the Passion Week shows us. Jesus gives everything of who he is and the result leads to what? Easter morning. Resurrection. The experience of true greatness comes as we seek to follow Jesus throughout the whole story of our lives. As those who know that Jesus is the king, we're going to move towards him, we're going to submit to him. Jesus is the one who condescends and is crucified, and we're going to even be called to die with him to things. But, whereas Jesus is forsaken, we, we never will be. That this triumphal entry that we see take place here is a foretaste of what Jesus is saying. This is a party where all are invited. We're all moving into this together. And then I'm going to die for all of us. And then I'm going to rise for all of us so that you can be part of this new kingdom of which I am the king. So, thinking a little more about this, practically, what does it mean for us to enter in with Jesus in this triumphal entry? What does it really mean for us to experience the greatness of who this king is? A couple things to note. One would be one of the biggest barriers to experiencing this greatness that Jesus offers by faith. What's one of the biggest barriers? Pride. Pride says, I am fully capable. I have the resources to take care of whatever it is I need to take care of. It says, I can make things happen. I have the intelligence, I have the power, I have the abilities, I have the tools, I have the education, I have the will. I can, I can do this. Pride's a liar. Jesus is the king. He's the conqueror. We're not the conqueror. He's the conqueror. We're conquerors in him, but we don't do it in our own power. You know, part of us beginning to experience the greatness of who Jesus is is to actually understand that it is a daily dependence on his grace that enables us to experience that greatness that he offers to us. Probably the biggest barrier to us experiencing that victory, that triumphal entry, those promises he's given us is pride. But the enabler that allows us to join him is faith. Humility says every day, is a gift I don't deserve. I'm not my own, but belong to another. I'm fully dependent on him in all things. This idea that Christ is our servant and that we have this deep need and he comes to serve us by giving everything so that we can access this new kingdom, that's the picture of the kingdom that Jesus is inviting his disciples into and he's inviting us into. Essentially, we need to learn to agree with Jesus. Now, the disciples had this moment. It's an experience of faith for them, for sure. Jesus says, I want you to go out, find this colt, untie it, and take it. If you get caught, tell them the master needs it. And they go, okay, and so they do it. Jesus is letting them be part of the triumphal entry. Do you see that? Then the disciples put cloaks over the donkey or the colt, the fowl. 
puts blankets over it, and they begin to walk in. What happens? They're entering in with Jesus. The people lay branches down. They're celebrating. They're part of the entering into the kingdom by worshiping Jesus. Hosanna in the highest. We're going to acknowledge God for who he is. In other words, we're going to agree with Jesus that he is who he says he is. In John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, he can do nothing. Are you hearing Jesus' invitation to be part of triumph? I'm the vine. Be a part of me. If you're connected to me, I'm, I'm connected to you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Part of the experience of learning to agree with Jesus, of attaching yourself to this vine, of being a part of this triumphal entry, is the simple act of prayer, the simple act of communication with God. John Stott, you may know who he is, he's a British pastor and theologian, wrote some letters. And he writes in his letters about one of the prayers that he would regularly say in the last years of his life. This is what he would say. It says he got up at 5 a.m. to do this. I'm not there yet, but this is what he prayed. Good morning, Heavenly Father. Good morning, Lord Jesus. Good morning, Holy Spirit, Heavenly Father. I worship you as the creator and sustainer of the universe. Lord Jesus, I worship you, Savior and Lord of the world. Holy Spirit, I worship you, sanctifier of the people of God. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Each morning he'd wake up and say that prayer. Why? To lead his heart in agreeing with the King Jesus. To lead his heart in catching up with who God is in his own soul for the day. Now, one of the very practical things you can do if you really want to experience the greatness of who Jesus is, is to experience the act of prayer. To say the Lord's Prayer or to come up with a prayer like John Stott did here with sort of a doxology. But to communicate with the King of heaven and earth. Our hearts need to be reminded of it. Pride doesn't take a break. It doesn't go on vacation. And it's the thing that keeps us from trusting this King. And Jesus is inviting us to participate in what he's doing in this moment by learning to agree with him by learning to trust him. Another thing you can do to begin to experience the greatness of who Jesus is as the king is to learn to have a spirit of gratitude, to give thanks. What is it that you have to give thanks for in this life? You know, we pray for safe travel. That's a good thing. And we pray for health. That's a good thing. You know, what are the things that God has given you that are reminders of his goodness? To acknowledge that is to develop that relationship. You know, I remember... um, my aunt cared so much about me writing thank you notes. It was like more important than the gift, right? And I remember her asking me, you know, Brad, did you ever get that gift? I was like, yeah, thank you so much. I told you thanks. She goes, I never got a thank you note. It's like I didn't even give it to you. Now, God doesn't do that to us. But there is something special about acknowledging the gift giver to say to ourselves, we are grateful for the day you've given us. We're thankful for churches like Woods Edge and others who are kind to us so that we can meet for worship. We're thankful for our neighbors. We're thankful for the good things God has given us. As we begin to do that, we begin to agree with who Jesus is. Or consider the Lord's Prayer that we said a few moments ago. We gave thanks for our daily bread. Something that is so simple and so significant. As a gift from the the giver of all things. By entering into living a life of communicating with God, of learning to agree with Jesus, and learning to be thankful 
to acknowledge who it is who gives you all that you have. You're making your way towards experiencing the greatness of who Jesus is. Or this third idea, a bigger one, to think about the idea of love as a, as a discipline and a practice to enter into the kingdom of God in your own heart. To think to yourself, I want to see more of who God is. I'm going I'm to access that by learning how to love people better. You know, not the kind of love that's driven by emotions or opinions. Or how about this? Not the kind of love that's driven by if the person deserves it or not. A kind of love that isn't determined based on the failures of the person. A different kind of love. A Christ-like love. A kingly love. C.S. Lewis writes about this kind of love in, in Mere Christianity. He says this, Do not waste time bothering whether you will love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the greatest secrets. When you're behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love them. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. Consequently, though Christian charity sounds a very cold thing to people whose heads are full of sentimentality and though it's quite distinct from affection, yet it leads to affection. And part of his point there is like loving someone out of duty and saying, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to love you. And they don't know that part, okay? That's the part you keep to yourself. But trying and seeking to love someone, even when your heart is, is struggling to do so, not loving them because of that is sentimentality. It's being sentimental, as C.S. Lewis is putting it here. Powering through loving people who are hard to love is actually the kind of Christ-like and kingly love that Jesus is exhibiting for us. Lewis continues, The worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not even have imagined himself ever liking in the beginning. Do you see that? One of the ways of experiencing the greatness of who Jesus is is learning how to love people like Jesus loves people. Now, if you're someone who finds that really hard to believe, the only thing I want you to take away from the night is this. I want you to really bask in the fact that Jesus cherishes you and loves you. Because what happens is when, you be, like when you're struggling to love someone else, you're struggling to believe this is really the paradigm of life that Jesus gives to us, start over. Experience God's love for yourself. God's love is transformational. Really understanding that this king who enters into Jerusalem on a cult and submitting himself to be sacrificed and to die on the cross, to be forsaken by his father, and then to rise from the dead. If you really begin to bask in the fact that the God of heaven and earth cherishes you like that, you won't be able to not begin to love others. Because God has loved you while you were yet a sinner. God has loved you while you were disinterested. God has loved you while you were angry and prideful. God's love brings life. That's what the resurrection's all about. God is in the business of making dead things come to life. If true greatness is not wrapped up in the person of who Jesus is for us, it will be wrapped up in something for you because you're giving your life to something. You're making something central. What is it? If true greatness is all about you, then by necessity, you have to make others small. You have to begin to compare yourself to them and determine if they deserve your affections or not. If true greatness is all about loving others, then by necessity, you have to begin to look out for the good of others. You have to begin to lift them up. And why on earth would you pursue such a thing? Because it leads to resurrection, both in our own hearts and in the hearts of those that we are loving. 
According to Jesus, true greatness is found in very ordinary things, very ordinary circumstances. He talks about washing feet, as we read in the Gospel of John. If I then, your teacher, the Lord of heaven and earth, have washed others' feet, you need to do it. And Jesus calls us to love others as ourselves. It's his way of inviting us into loving others as he has loved us. True greatness is found in making a meal for a sick friend. True greatness is found in befriending people who are friendless. True greatness is found in learning how to actually forgive, to forgive in a way that leads to life. It's found in the simple things because guess what? There's nothing that God doesn't care about. There's nothing that he is not interested in. You know, if this is, again, if this concept is unattractive to you, my encouragement to you is just to kind of ignore everything I've said, except I want you to bask in the fact that God cherishes you. That is the starting point. That's Jesus' interaction with people all the way in the Gospel of Mark so far. His goal, for them to taste and see that God is good. Because if we taste and see that God is good, we're going to want to enter in the triumphal entry with him. We're going to want to have his death on the cross be our death. We're going to be excited about the reality that resurrection is made available to us by grace and through faith. That's the starting point. But if if you've already accepted that and you believe that, then entering into this greatness and following Jesus in the triumphal entry for you looks a lot like trying to figure out how to love others as God has loved you. It looks like asking your heart, where can I agree with God in areas I've not agreed with Him? Let me pray and communicate with Him. It looks like us beginning to access his promises and his goodness for us and and leaning into his faithfulness for us to give thanks for the good things that he has done. Consider these words. We're we're about to be done here. As we enter into Passion Week, I know tomorrow's Sunday. You can go back and watch the sermon again tomorrow if if that makes you feel better. But as we enter into Passion Week, Something you can be praying is this. God, help me to believe that you are who you say you are. To be able to even pray these words, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. God desires to bring his kingdom to bear on your life this week. I don't know where. I just know for a fact you need it. I don't know the specifics of where you're struggling, but I know that God's grace is sufficient to encourage you in the midst of it, whether it's physical illness or emotional stress, or things at work, or whatever it is. This is the king. And he approaches you this evening and invites you to put your trust in him, to agree, to agree with him, to give thanks for the things he's done, to learn to love others as he has loved you, because that is the path that leads to life. Okay? As we leave this place in a few moments, I want to encourage you this week, maybe create a target list of at least one person that you can learn to love as God has loved you because in that, that's where we begin to experience Jesus' greatness in very, very, very special ways because God has loved us perfectly, all right? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this evening as we think about your triumphal entry, as we think about the realities of what you would have to face in the Passion Week of being praised by people who are calling out to you, Hosanna in the highest, only shortly thereafter to be accused and to be crucified by those same people, 
to enter into a kind of suffering we can barely fathom so that we might experience your love. Lord, would you take the words from the scriptures in the Gospel of Mark chapter 11 and this vision of Christ entering into the kingdom, would you, incur, would you allow us to see it as an invitation to enter into it with him? to learn to agree with Him, to give thanks for the things that He's done in our lives, to access His love in such a way it teaches us to love others. We ask that you do this in the powerful name of Christ our Savior. Amen.